0: First, you think is a not for profit ministry of the First Unitarian Church of Des Moines. Support us at ucdsm.org today. Who are your people? A few years ago, a group of Unitarian Universalist ministers met in retreat with Rezma Menachem, this brilliant therapist and change agent who speaks in the reading about his grandmother's hands. He asked us to go around the circle with introductions with this question, who are your people? Which can be a deep or a shallow question, depending on how vulnerable and trusting and honest you feel like being with yourself, with your companions. So our group decided to go deep, and one by one shared family stories of failure and success and struggle and work and ethnic identity, religious identity. People talked about their grandparents who were Jews who left Russia after decades of pogroms, Irish immigrants fleeing the famine, Norwegian farmers, Italians, Poles, Germans, someone whose great-great-great-grandmother was born in Mexico and died in Texas but lived her whole life in the same house. One person traced roots on both sides of their family directly back to slavery. And as friends and colleagues who hadn't known that, we just took a breath and tried to hold the weight of it. Another said the same, except not the same. This one knew their people had been owners of enslaved people. It was the family business for more than a century, and some in that family were still in the present unashamed of it, and my colleague wept to tell it. Those who are dead are never gone They're there in the thickening shadow. The dead are not under the earth. They're in the water that runs, the water that sleeps. They are in the grasses that weep, the breast of the woman. They whisper in the wind, and they are in your breath. So says Birago Diop, poet of Senegal, and this is true. Where are your people? Resma's work with us was all about what the body remembers, not just the mind, which is full of stories and narrative, legends and lies and truth, all intertwined, but the body, which remembers things without our conscious editing about who our people really were and where they came from and what they saw and heard and felt, what they did and what it meant on this visceral level. The body remembers, he says, even down through generations, remembers being held and being hurt and doing harm and healing. All the injuries and tenderness are in us. That's the substance of his book, My Grandmother's Hands, in which he talks about somatic trauma, especially racialized trauma, and the wounds that persist through generations in white bodies, black bodies, and what he calls blue bodies, the bodies of law enforcement personnel with whom he works closely. He writes, unhealed trauma inside a person is like a rock thrown into a pond. It causes ripples that move outward, affecting many other bodies over time. After months or years, unhealed trauma can appear to become part of somebody's personality. Over even longer periods of time, as it's passed on and gets compounded through other bodies in a household, it can become a family norm. And if it gets transmitted and compounded through multiple families and generations in society, it will start to look like culture. He writes about his grandmother's hands, what they remembered through the wounds healed years ago and her, though the wounds healed years ago and her scars were very old. Her hands remembered the lacerations of cotton balls as nerves and muscles elsewhere in her body recalled the clenched fear of her four-year-old self thrusting those little hands again and again into the razor-sharp pods. Resma would argue that somewhere in her bones and blood, she remembered even more, without even knowing it, the lacerations of her mother's hands or her grandfather's back, the bodies of ancestors beaten and broken and battered by other bodies, white bodies, which also bore and then passed on memories of trauma. He says, we're all wounded here. He talks about resilience, also, and this hard work of deliberate transformation that can just stop an old story right in its tracks and change the direction, then, like a river. At some point, he says, his grandmother decided that whenever her gnarled, old, swollen hand touched the soft little hand of her grandchild, it would transmit only love, not mutilated injury, Not victimization and fear, but courage and compassion. She willed that. Rezma's work is about what happens in a culture, in a country, when racialized trauma and other violence are passed unchecked through generations, and how we can choose to intercept the legacy. He asked us in our circle, who are your people? And we shared stories over three days of migration and survival, some backed up by family lore and genealogy and Ancestry.com, all the official data, but others, most of it, just wisps and traces and speculation and the whispered rumors you carry in your head, all the great lonely gaps where wind and wandering blow through. That's where you start writing your new chapters, he said. Who are your people? For many years, I didn't know quite how to answer. I was adopted at four weeks old. I had no access to closed records held by the state of New York. My parents were always honest with me, and they reinforced this early instinct I carry still, that random chance and accident and luck are powerful forces in this world. I always wondered, even when I was little, how is it, that I got into this family and not a different one, without any credentials or portfolio, no medical records, no roots in any family tree, except the whole human family tree. I grew up with broad loyalties and wide kinship, with a permeable boundary around my sense of family defined not by blood, but by choosing And this was, I now know, incredibly lucky. I had a sense of belonging not exactly to anyone, but absolutely with everyone. And nobody ever said it, but I always knew that things could easily have been very different. Maybe my birth mother or the next adoptive mother on the social workers list were monsters. Or maybe they were saints. Maybe better than I got and then around age 12, 13, I would say that out loud, unfortunately, I'm not from here. I knew that I was where I was and not elsewhere through no effort, no virtue, no fault of my own. And somehow I knew this must be true for all of us, everybody. No matter how they came into the world, no matter how you came in to your own circumstances, dropped into your own family by birth or adoption or whatever, we all landed where we did by accident, by grace or luck or chance. I think of this all the time. I think of it when I think of the earthquake in Turkey. Why are they there and we're here? Or climate devastation anywhere, or famine, or flood, or the ravages of the capitalist white supremacist economy that roll through our whole country, affecting some people pretty much all the time, and others of us, not so much. Think of yourself like a little fiery spark of spirit a moat of dust, your core self, sparkling soul, each of us just came sprinkling down and landed where we did by accident. And now we're embodied as we are, placed as we are. And what we make of our circumstances, how we choose as we go through our days, our lives, to level up the playing field, what we make of our circumstances makes all the difference. One of the earliest threads of what later became my theology was this subconscious understanding of the difference between virtue and luck, and how randomly privilege falls on the shoulders of some and not others, and how by luck or grace I began to know, even as a little kid, that there's the life you are given over which you have zero control, and the life you craft over which you have mm, a little control. And I remember the first time I saw a picture of an astronaut floating in space and how moving it was. And I know now I must have recognized him as a kindred spirit, another person who seemed to have fallen out of the cosmos, not quite connected, not grounded, not trusting the ground always. And then I saw that thin line tethering him to the spacecraft that was out of the frame. The life cord binding him back to the other astronauts and life and Earth and his friends and his children, everything. That fragile, essential bond. And that also made a deep impression, though I didn't get it at the time. That is the power of the relationships we weave by hand and allegiances we nurture, all the lifelines that we toss out to each other, the safety nets that catch us when we're in some kind of free fall and believe that we're alone, which we are not. We're all related. Our people are all people, including the tree people out there, the red-winged blackbird people who are packing their bags and heading back toward us pretty soon, the raccoon person I caught watching me from a tree, sort of ominously by the stream this morning as I walked up here. Why still awake? I don't know. We all fell out of the sky somehow, and we're here to cast the lines and weave the net that's going to hold everybody safe. And even if A DNA test leads to one little clue, and then another, and blood relatives suddenly show up, as was the case for me, amazingly, two years ago. Even then, your story, the story of your people, is also, and much more, the story not of genes, but of what happened, and who held you, and who actually hurt you, and taught you, and inspired you, literally breathed spirit, or hope, or the light of wonder into you, who did that, and what you've made of it, and how it binds you to everybody who's ever been hurt or beloved or blessed or betrayed. Our family is what we say it is, and our story resides in the body and breath of lived relationship. It's why it was so beautiful to hear ourselves singing a cappella when we sang Comfort Me. It's beautiful with Bruce. And for just one Sunday, it was beautiful without, just to hear your breath and voices saying, comfort me. It's also why this whole church is ready to show up, which you're already doing at the Capitol through this whole legislative session now. Because trans children and queer children, their literal lives are being threatened right now. And those children are your children. It's that simple. A poet writes, It doesn't interest me if there's one God or many gods or none. I want to know if you belong or feel abandoned. If you know despair and can see it in other people, I want to know if you are prepared to live in the world with its harsh need to change you. If you can look back with firm eyes saying, This is where I stand. I want to know if you know how to melt into that fierce heat of living, falling toward the center of your longing. I want to know if you're willing to live day by day with the consequences of love. The poem by David White is called Self-Portrait, and he says he wrote it to himself after looking one morning for a long, long time in the bathroom mirror. I want to know what kind of person you are, he said to his own reflection. So, a story. In the early months of the pandemic shutdown, I read about a woman in New Jersey, Tanisha Brunson Malone, 41 years old. She's a forensic technician in a hospital morgue doing work that she says she knew she wanted to do even as a child, figuring out how the human body works and why it stops working when it does. It's so interesting how people come into their vocation, right? So there's children running around wanting to work in the morgue. That's good for the rest of us. (laughs) Normally, she performs autopsies, preparing bodies for funerals. And she's always loved this work, which she approaches like a calling. But in those first harrowing months of COVID, it was different. The morgue where she works had to expand into an adjacent parking garage where bodies were stored in three refrigerated trucks and one more in the parking lot outside. Do you remember those early days, February, March of the pandemic, when we were hearing these horrible stories from the West Coast, and then suddenly it was New York City, and we couldn't believe it where we were? The weight of it began to weigh her down. Her shifts were longer and longer on both ends, and at some point she made this daily practice which saved her, saved her spirit in that time. Every day before work, she got up early. Sometimes after work, she stayed late, and she went to the Metropolitan Plant and Flower Exchange, a wholesaler, and bought up all the daffodils they had. Sometimes she had to settle for carnations. It didn't matter. Every morning she arrived at work with armloads of yellow flowers, and every day before her shift she went through that morgue and then out to those trailers and outdoors, and she placed a flower on every single body bag every single day. She is a technician. She's a scientist. She approaches the human body and death in a way that most of us don't. Not afraid, not repulsed, not sentimental, but it was breaking the flesh and blood heart inside her chest to see all those people there in a place where their loved ones could not visit, and many of those people died alone and would be buried alone, because it was at that point in the pandemic. She doesn't make a ton of money, but she spent, she says when she was pressed about it, about $100 a week on flowers for weeks and weeks and then months on end until the florist who was onto her eventually gave her a discount, but still tons of money. And no one saw the flowers but her and the funeral directors who came to pick up the bodies. And one guy said, tough guys, right? They're doing this work all the time. He said he and his crew just cried the first time they saw it. Tanisha Brunson Malone said in the article, I don't know, it just felt like the right thing to do. And she said it was as much for her as for anybody else. But when I read that, I thought, that's a sacrament right there. It's a proclamation where without any words, she said to them one by one, I honor you, I speak your name, I love you, you're my family. There was nothing in her extensive anatomy training that could ever explain where inside us such decorum and generosity of spirit and wisdom reside. Where is that when you do the autopsy? How do we learn to be the humans we are? How does that get into us? How do we teach each other, and how do we pass it on? The genealogy I care about is not about genetics, not how did you get your blue eyes, your brown hair, or your blood type, but how did your conscience come down to you? Who taught you to be good? Where in your tree do you trace the lines of courage and so oh, there it is. And where is the genetic marker for compassion showing up? From whom did you inherit your capacity for hope, even against the crushing odds of our time? Not everybody's got it, as we know. But if you carry just a trace, it could be enough to go on. And you might even be called on to share it, the way sometimes in a crisis we're all asked to give our blood. What's your blood type? Generous? thankful, bitter, or maybe you have none to spare, no hope whatsoever to spare, and you're in constant need of iron supplements just to greet the day, which is what community is for. It's what church is for. Who are not just your blood relatives, your DNA ancestors, but your ethical, spiritual relations? Can you make a chart? of the ones who gave you your love of art and justice and music, who bequeathed to you a moral compass like an old pocket watch that's heavy in your hand. These might be people you've known in person. They might not. They might be famous. Maybe not. They could be elders. They could be little children. They might be real people. They might be fictional characters. Who's your tribe? The ones you fall back on. And some of them might be sitting here this morning, or in our Zoom uh, companion group. Maybe you know them, maybe not. Maybe you just know you've been searching for a long time, and now you have this intuition that this may be the place and the people you belong to. This might be your spirit's home. This time of transition in your church is a good time to ask questions like this. This summer in August, a new interim minister is going to come here for two years, and they're going to want to know. They will need to know, to do good ministry, the story of this place, the stories of this place, how it got this way, in order to travel with you the next step and the next toward the eventual call two years out of a settled minister. The interim advisory team, as you know, is working to gather all these materials to share a little of your story, a snapshot, a glimpse, and the process therein is really fast, not like a settled search, so they don't have time to share everything, and nor can they, because they're just a few people, and you are many, many generations intersecting, overlapping stories of community. So how, over the next two years, Are you going to tell the story of this place to the interim minister who needs to know it, and in time to the next minister? What's the story you're telling yourselves? And what parts of the family story do you hope and intend to pass on because they matter and they're so beautiful, they're core to your identity? And what parts of the history will you openly, honestly tell but choose not to perpetuate. Like Resma's grandmother with her gnarly hands. She told him the whole truth about her life, the struggle, but she decided one day those hands are not gonna transmit the hurt they had known, the bitterness, the fear. She could hold her story out of herself like that in the hands and not need to keep reliving it. Do you know what I mean? Every family, every person, every community No sorrow and struggle and disappointment and loss and trauma and drama and change. We speak what happened to us among us, speak our truth, which in community is complex. It's many, many truths. And then we decide, what are the next chapters now? The life we intend to shape? The kind of people we mean to be? What matters in your church? What do you stand for, care about, trust, believe in? And how did you get like this? And what do you want to be next? What will you leave behind because it can't really serve you very well anymore? And what is waiting? All of us carry inside, among, trouble and trauma, flashes of courage, wild aspiration, sympathy, kindness, all together Our lives are just like we're sorting through the boxes, all this stuff that is our inheritance. And we choose by our actions and intentions what pieces of it the future gets. Who are your people is a question not about tribalism or parochialism or exclusion. It's an orientation of the heart. And I think of the words of the Apostle Paul, we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. All these people, living and dead, people we know, people we don't, our spirit family. They're shining light to guide us. When I was small at night, I used to close my eyes and try to picture them, my relatives, my real people. This is, again, 12, 13 years old. (laughs) My birth mother and her mother and grandmother, great-grandparents, all the way back. I would close my eyes in my bed and wait to see if I could see them walking toward me with their arms outstretched trying to find me. And, of course, I couldn't see them. And sometimes I still do it. I close my eyes and try to picture all my ancestors, blood relatives, adoption family. They're all mixed up. I don't ID them at the gate of the bed here saying, nope, you're not really my people. I'll take anybody. And some, maybe they're not my ancestors at all, but they're ancestors in spirit, people whose light I'm trying to carry forward keep from going out. So I close my eyes, try to conjure them, assure them I'll cherish what they've left in the world. And then I open my eyes and here we all are, right? This community, others we're so glad to be part of, we redefine all our lives a good answer to the question about our people, the ones to whom we're accountable. And we expand that circle ever wider till those on the margins are brought to the center and the whole family is just right here. We sang just now. (laughs) in all different verses at all different times, perfect singing, I think. Oh, where are our dear fathers? Where are our dear mothers? Oh, how can I be lonely? My friends are all around me. Their loving arms surround me. Day is breaking in my soul. Who are those people? So take a breath. And in the silence here, breathing in and breathing out the spirit of life, gather into your mind the faces, the names of one or two or several people, living or dead, present or past, who've inspired you, breathed into you the breath of life and hope. I'm going to ring the chime again. And then into the silence and out of it, Just whisper their names the way you did before in the meditation. Just speak their names so we can all hold them. Who are your people? Spoken and unspoken, we will cherish and honor them all.